Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Gene, and I am one of the pastors here at Exilic. And uh, if, if you haven't seen me in a little bit, that's because I was on paternity leave. Uh, so I do want to thank you for giving me some time off. This is my fourth kid, but the first time I've ever had a leave. So I really, at first, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, I don't feel rested at all right now, but it is good to be back. And uh, I do want to say one thing just to kind of clear the record. Uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Aaron preached a sermon, and during that sermon, um, I, I just want to say this just to clear the record. I have never watched an episode of Singles Inferno <laughs> in my entire life. And people have been coming up to me wanting to talk about the show, and I have no idea what it's about. He was joking, so please don't approach me to talk about Singles Inferno. Uh, just wanted to clear the record on that. Well, if you're new to our church, then uh, just want to say that the summer is an interesting time in the rhythms of our church. It's a time where we kind of take a break from our, our normal schedule, our normal rhythms, and we get a chance to hear from guest speakers. We get to hear about topics and passages outside of our scheduled sermon series. So last week, our guest speaker, Pastor Matt Terrell, he preached a beautiful message on Psalm 100. And in that message, he talked about joy. And he defined joy as a deep abiding sense of happiness that isn't tied to someone's circumstances. I love that. A deep abiding sense of happiness. And I think that that's something that all of us want and all of us need in our lives. And he said that the way you get this joy, it's to know or to think about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So in Psalm 100, what he preached on last week, there's a very intricate and symbiotic relationship between knowing God and joy and worshiping him joyfully. There's this repeated cycle in the verses between the head and the heart. So here's what, I'm, here's what it looks like. Uh, first, the heart rejoicing. Verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. That's the heart. And then it cycles to the head. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then it cycles back to the heart in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name, and then it goes back to the head. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. This is the pattern. If I can use some $10 words, doxology leads to theology, which leads back to doxology, which leads back to theology. What I mean is intimate worship of God should lead you to want to know more about God. And then learning more about God should lead you to worship God more deeply and intimately. This is how we grow in our faith. It's this beautiful dance between the head and the heart. 
So when we hear God's word, when we learn about him, that shouldn't just stay in our heads, but that truth should penetrate down to our hearts and produce in our hearts this deep and abiding joy. And then that should lead us deeper into God's word, which leads to deeper worship, and it goes on and on and on. But if one of these is missing, it will not lead to deeper faith. It will not lead to a deeper relationship with God, but it will lead inevitably to sin. So if you're a Christian and you know your Bible, you know your theology, you read books, you listen to sermons in your free time, you stay up to date on the latest controversies on Christian Twitter, Twitter or Christian threads now, uh, and you subscribe to a bunch of blogs, but you treat other people with contempt, and you think you're better than people who don't know as much as you do, that's not maturing as a believer. Or, on the flip side, if you're all about worship, and you value music and experience of God, but you don't have any appetite for the Bible, and the last thing you want to do is a Bible study, there's something missing there as well. The balance, the cycle, the dance, it's so important. Theology, doxology, knowing, worshiping, the head, the heart. This is the key to a faithful and fruitful Christian life. So it's no accident then that the nature of, tempta of temptation and the tactics of the enemy, the essence of sin, they are to upend, subvert this cycle. So two weeks ago, Pastor Aaron preached on the very first temptation and sin in Genesis 3. So let's take a look real quick at the serpent's M.O., says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the women, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the serpent's tactic is to sow doubt. He creates confusion about what God had said. It's, it's kind of like a form of gaslighting. He exaggerates what God has said, and it makes it seem completely unreasonable and crazy to follow. Did, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You hear it? It's just, it's dripping with sarcasm. Really? He said you can't eat from any of these amazing trees? What a jerk. He makes the woman question her perception of reality. And we see that it works. Because she gets the prohibition only half correct. 
God had said they can't eat from, they can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden. But she takes it a step further. And she adds, oh, oh, God also said we can't touch it or we're going to die. God never said that. We see that the serpent's venom of doubt, it seeps into Eve's mind and it makes its way down to her heart. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So by distorting God's word, the serpent is able to make Eve doubt God's goodness and provision. Once he compromises her head, the heart follows. And you know the story. She takes the fruit, she eats it, then she gives some to Adam who's with her. He takes it and eats it. They both choose against their loving God. They fall into sin and they're expelled from the garden paradise east into the wilderness. But even as God judges them, it's like he can't help it. He promises to bring them back. He promises a savior who will one day crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Old Testament is God preparing the stage for the one who will come. In our passage today, it shows us the one who has come. It takes place right after Jesus' baptism. Remember Jesus' baptism? Let's take a look at Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So where are we in the story? Well, this is before the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry. So this is before he calls any disciples. It's before he performs any miracles. It's before he preaches any sermons. He's baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The voice of the Father proclaims, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then right away, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. Now, I'm sure that Jesus, growing up, experienced a lot of temptations. As a child, I'm sure he felt temptations to be selfish. Maybe he felt the temptation to hit a bully back or lie to his parents. Maybe the, the temptation to play instead of doing his homework or sneaking an extra snack. He must have experienced temptation going through puberty, all those hormones raging, bodies changing. He must have felt the cultural and parental pressures to be a successful Jewish man who would pursue material wealth, settle down with the right girl. 
But this temptation in the wilderness is not an ordinary temptation. This is different. So what's going on here? You know in the movies, when the bad guy defeats or kills someone, and the hero or the heroine of the story has to train and prepare and go back to face that enemy? I know most of you haven't seen this movie because it's from the 1980s, but uh, you really need to. This should be required for every American citizen. Rocky IV. There's a new Russian boxer named Ivan Drago. He emerges and he challenges and kills the former heavyweight champ, Apollo Creed, in an exhibition match. So what does our hero Rocky have to do? He has to train. There's this epic 80s montage, synthesizer keys, full blasting, and he's in the woods and he's just training and training and training. And he goes all the way to the Soviet Union in the height of the Cold War to avenge his friend Apollo. That's what's going on here. The serpent defeated the first Adam. And as a result, Adam and all his descendants are cast out of paradise into the wilderness. So Jesus, the second Adam, is like Rocky going to Russia. Or, or it's Harry Potter going back to Godric's Hollow to face the enemy who killed his parents. Jesus, the second Adam, he goes into the wilderness to replay, to rematch the same trial that the first Adam failed. It's the same thing. And you might think, well, this should be easy. Jesus is God. Adam was a man. Jesus has superpowers. Jesus is stronger than the devil. But one thing we have to notice is that Jesus faces the devil in his humanity as a man, which means he doesn't use superpowers. Because in order to truly be our substitute, Jesus had to do it fully man. And it is in, this, in, in his humanity that he faces the same trial that our first Adam faced. So actually, the devil has every advantage here. It's kind of like when I play basketball, if I play basketball with my kids, they get to make the rules. Three against one, you can only use your left hand, no jumping, and you have to wear a blindfold, Dad. What were the circumstances of this test for Jesus? Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. His body is so weak, he's at the brink of death. His mind must have been definitely affected as well. And Jesus, remember, at this time, he doesn't have the benefit of years of ministry experience to back him up. Jesus is a rookie. Jesus is the, the, the hyped dr number one draft pick. He's playing in his first NBA, NBA Summer League game. That's Jesus. So Satan's tactic, it's the same tactic that he used in the garden. Sow doubt, 
leverage insecurity and inexperience, instill fear. Same tactics. Look at what I mean in in Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Just like when he came to Adam and Eve and he said, Did God really say that? He whispers to Jesus, If, if you really are the Son of God, remember 40 days ago, Jesus He was baptized. He, everyone there, they heard God the Father directly say, this is my beloved son. And here's Satan saying, are you sure? Did God really say that? How do you know it's for real? What if you fail? What if you're a bust? What if you can't do it? And this first temptation, it it seems harmless. Jesus fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. He's hungry. Satan doesn't tell Jesus, go steal food. Go hurt somebody. He doesn't tempt Jesus to lie or commit adultery. The temptation here is merely this. Use the power that you have. Turn these stones to bread and eat. You're starving. What's so bad about that? And here's the heart of the temptation. Satan's saying to Jesus, break the fast. Jesus has been fasting. Well, what's the point of the fast? It's depriving yourself of food to remind yourself that your ultimate sustenance, your ultimate satisfaction comes from God and not in God's creation. The whole point of Jesus' fasting is deeper communion, deeper fulfillment in God. And it's also to demonstrate faith. Jesus operates by faith. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast. So instead of waiting in faith for the Spirit to lead him to eat, Satan tells Jesus, you go ahead, just do it. Eat. You've done it for 40 days. That's good. And here we learn something about the nature of sin. All of us are living in a wilderness where our souls experience deep hunger that can only be satisfied by God. And our bodies, they rely on the created world to survive. As creatures, we all need food. We need shelter, money, peace, comfort, pleasure, relationships. These are not bad things, just like bread is not bad And most of the time, sin is not doing bad things, but it's trying to satisfy our soul's desires with good things that are not God. So what I'm not saying is we all need to fast all the time, but we need to find in God true satisfaction, true sustenance, true fulfillment. So in so many ways, living by faith, it means Delayed gratification, because sin is about instant gratification. I want to satiate my appetite now, instead of waiting on God, trusting in his timing. I would like my pleasure now, please. That's adultery. I would like what doesn't belong to me now. That's greed. 
Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory. I love this quote. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Here's what sin is. Sin is settling for lesser pleasures, being content in them. Faith then, is the opposite. It's waiting for something bigger, better, and eternal. Jesus refuses the temptation, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus affirms that God is his greatest need and his true sustenance. Can I ask you this morning, what do you think right now your greatest need is? Maybe you have a loved one who is sick. Maybe you're battling mental health issues. Maybe you're looking for a job. Is your greatest need maybe finding the one? Or maybe it's your struggling marriage or finances. We often become so preoccupied meeting these needs that we forget our greatest and deepest need. We need to be fed and live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil, he concedes round one and he moves on to round two. The devil then takes Jesus, remember they're out in the wilderness, he takes Jesus back into the city through the busy streets, and then into the temple, and then up the stairs to the top of the temple, and he tells Jesus, if, again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Satan says, if you are the Son of God. Again, he's trying to make Jesus doubt God's word. But not just God's word. He's trying to make Jesus doubt his mission, his identity. If you are the son of God, get some confirmation. Get some confirmation. How is that going to hurt? If you really are the son of God, then God will not let you die here. Does someone ever uh, tell you something and you don't quite trust it? So you want to double-check, but you also don't want to hurt their feelings by double-checking? Satan's saying, well, even if God said that, let's make sure. Let, let, let's double-check. Let's make sure. And then there's also this, this angle of this temptation. As Jesus kind of looked down from the top of the temple, as he saw all the people down there, it's a very public place, this thought must have crossed Jesus' mind. If I do this and everyone sees, they're all going to be amazed. They're all going to believe in me. What better way to start his ministry than with a stunt like this? It'll go viral, a million subscribers right off the bat. What's the sin here? Well, faith is believing something you haven't seen. 
faith is trusting in something that hasn't been empirically proven. It's a wholehearted trust in God, and the motivation behind jumping off the temple is a need to verify and prove God's power and protection. And there's also this. Remember, Jesus' whole mission, it's about obeying the Father. So the Father sends, the Son obeys. But this reverses that. Because now Jesus is saying, I'm going to jump, Father, you catch me. Jesus' mission is the Father sends, he obeys. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to jump, Father, you save me. Father, you obey me. Do you see the nature of the sin? It reverses the mission of the Son. And this was a sin in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here was the test. Will you obey God and trust him to determine for you what is good and evil? Or will you try to be God by gaining that knowledge for yourself? Satan saying to Jesus, I know God said you're his son, but find out for yourself. Get that knowledge. Jump. And Jesus again refuses. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Round two also goes to Jesus. So finally, Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and miraculously in a moment, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. He shows him the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, Babylonian, Mongol, Greek, Roman, American all the earthly kingdoms in all of their glory, and Satan cuts right to the chase. He says this, okay, enough. Bow down to me, worship me, you will get all of these. You you get it right now. Instant. No cross, no mess, no waiting, right now. And this is sin. God out of the picture, you get what you want when you want it. That's sin. No God, you get what you want when you want it. Now, you might be thinking this, and you might be thinking, well, if Satan offered that to me, I wouldn't bow down and worship him. I wouldn't be this weird Satanist or devil worshiper. But you know what? We all functionally do this, don't we? We pursue earthly kingdoms on our terms without God. The Bible says that Satan has been given authority in this world for this time. And when we worship earthly idols, we are essentially bowing down to Satan's authority. When we live for the idols of career or beauty or money, or romantic love, or comfort, or pleasure, or control. God is this distant priority. What we are functionally doing is we are bowing down and worshiping the devil. I have a question for you. Let's say I were to make you this offer right now. Would you be tempted by it? If I said to you, I will give you one thing that your heart really wants. One thing that your heart really wants. So it could be, you fill in the blank. It could be 
the man and woman of your dreams. It could be winning the Powerball. It could be healing someone from cancer. What, whatever it is, if I could guarantee you one thing, whatever it is your heart wants, but the condition is this. My only condition is if you get it, you cannot attend church or pray or read the Bible for one year. Would you take it? Would you at least be tempted by it? If you're hesitating right now, then you understand the pull of this third temptation. But for Jesus, this was unthinkable. Unthinkable, because the more you love someone, you, you cannot bear to be away from that person. My, my youngest son, Jacob, turned two months old yesterday. Every moment I have with him is the best moment of my day. He, he started doing this thing where he just looks at me, and then he just starts smiling, like uncontrollably smiling, and it just melts my heart. When he cries, my heart breaks a little bit. I can't get enough of him. There's no amount of money that you could pay me to be apart from him. For Jesus, this is unthinkable. And, and he gets emotional. He shouts, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus will not betray his father. And what's more, Jesus will not abandon his people. You know, there's one commonality. There's one common thread in all three of these temptations. It's this. Jesus gets what he wants without the suffering. Okay? So he gets bread without the hunger. He gets confirmation about God. He gets instant acceptance from people without suffering or waiting. He gets all the kingdoms of the world without the cross. All three of these temptations eliminate suffering. But eliminating suffering, it also means eliminating salvation for us, those who have believed in Jesus. If Jesus does not go to the cross to die, then there is no forgiveness of sins for us. He gets what he wants, but not us. You know, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry... Jesus never once uses his power for himself. Look at every single miracle that Jesus ever performed. It's never for him. It's never to benefit him. It's funny because Satan comes here and he tells Jesus, take and eat this bread. And Jesus refuses. But at the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus does the same thing. He takes bread and he gives it to his disciples and says, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Jesus refuses to use his power to feed himself, but he gives his own body to feed us. Jesus refuses to draw attention to himself. Remember, he's always telling people not to talk about him. Hey, don't tell, don't tell anyone who healed you. Right? He could have jumped off that temple in front of everybody, but he doesn't want people following him just because they saw a miracle. That's not faith. And finally, Jesus will not take the kingdoms of the world 
on Satan's terms. He will not settle for instant gratification without the eternal salvation of his people. The second Adam passes the test that the first Adam failed. He lives the life that we could not live. And this is really important to us. I know we often think, oh, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. But it's not just the death of Jesus that is good news for us. It is the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't just die the death that we should have died. He lived the life that we could not live. That's, that's, that's really important. Because, you know, the death of Jesus, it only gets us forgiveness. But that just gets us to neutral. Like, if one of you came up to me and slapped me in the face, and I would say, okay, I forgive you, we're okay, we're good. I'm not pressing charges, but we're not hanging out. If Jesus just died for our sins, we're just neutral before God. But if he passes the test for us, if he lives for us, now before the eyes of God, we are righteous. We get credit for every good thing that Jesus ever did. Isn't that amazing that when God the Father looks at us, he's like, oh, wow, amazing. It's like we never sinned at all. It's like we did every good thing that Jesus ever did. That's good news. And the more we center our lives around that truth, it's going to change the way we live. We're not just neutral, forgiven sinners. Isn't it amazing that in your worst moments, in the thick of your darkest sins, you are righteous before God? of Jesus. No matter how much you run away from him, no matter how much you resist him, Jesus is for you. Jesus is your substitute. He's your champion. He's your savior. Jesus is for you right now. No matter how you've lived your life, no matter how many times you've failed, no matter how many people you've hurt, Jesus is for you. He's defeated the enemy for you. He's resisted temptation for you. He is for you now in your best moment, in your worst moment, forever. This is a Jesus to be treasured. This is a Jesus that you should want to learn more about. This is a God whose word you should meditate on, memorize, trust in. You know, how did, how did Jesus defeat Satan in the wilderness? Not with divine superpowers, but he did use the divine word of God. Every response to Satan that Jesus gives, it is quoting scripture. Even when Satan tries to distort it, Jesus knows it. So if Jesus needed scripture to defeat Satan, how much more do we in our fight against sin? The more you think about God's word, the more it will form and shape your heart. Theology and doxology, knowing, rejoicing, head, heart. May this dance define and deepen your faith and your relationship 
with Jesus, our Savior and 